yeah, I don't really know how to shift gears from that. Um, if you're visiting with us, I just want you to know too that like um, one of the things we believe is as a church is like church isn't just some place you just show up, do a religious thing, and leave. You know, we're a community of people and. Let me just read with those passages in Romans 12. You know, let, let love be without, without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Thank you for doing that, Eric. Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, bless those who persecute you, Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. I'll just stop there. But um, thank you guys for being a church that I know will seek to love them well. And, and um, yeah, please continue to do so. so. Well, that being said... Um, we are in the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 19 this morning. And in John chapter 19, you know, we sang, I don't, I don't know when the youth group planned this worship set, but I think it was a couple weeks ago, because I, I think they usually practice, there was so much about, like, Christ's victory over, like, the grave that we sang about this morning that I was really struck by. And, and, um, and that, that victory over the grave came through Jesus, like, willingly, offering himself up for death um, in our place so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins and life in him. That's the simple message of the, the Bible from beginning to end, and it's the hope of the world, and it's, it's our hope in times like this as well, that, that Jesus is, is working his redemptive purposes in all things. And, you know, last week we left off where Jesus was standing trial before Pilate, and, and um, and, and this, this interaction before Pilate kind of breaks out in seven different scenes. We, we covered three of them last week, and we're going to look at four of them this week. But what it shows us is Pilate being pulled back and forth between, like, the pressures that were around him, between, like, what he believed about Jesus because he knew Jesus was innocent and what the Jews were wanting him to do, which was to crucify him. And we, we looked at the first three scenes that, that last week. We're going to look at the next four this week. But one of the things that we saw is that Jesus told Pilate, like, you know, I am the king. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's not of this world. It doesn't live by its values. It, doesn't, it isn't established by its powers. It doesn't move forward in the way that kingdoms of this world move forward. In fact, it moves forward by the manifestation of the truth of what he's accomplished for us. You know, and Pilate's response was, what is truth? You know, Pilate unmoored himself from the truth and, and even like any conviction of the truth. And what I said last week and what we'll see this week is when you do that, when you like abandon the, 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 truth, the, the truth that this world is founded on, all that you're left with is yourself. And all that you're left with is the strength that you have to withstand all of the things that rise up against us in this world. And they are many. And, and that's where we ended last week, and, and Pilate's trying to figure out a way to release Jesus, so he comes up with this plan where he gets this terrorist by the name of Barabbas, and he, he brings him forward and says, like, hey, should I release for you this terrorist Barabbas, or should I release for you Jesus, the king of the Jews, the one who's done good his whole life? They're like, crucify Jesus. We want Barabbas. Like the, 
the religious leaders of the day were proud to accept Barabbas in place of Jesus. And, and Pilate, has, having plan A fail, his, his, um, he was forced to release a true enemy of Rome, as he, and he's going to end up crucifying one that was no threat to Rome whatsoever because he unmoored himself from the, the truth. You know, we're going to look at the last four scenes um, today, and they just kind of break out real simple. That, that Pilate comes up with plan B. Plan A didn't work with, with the releasing of Barabbas, so he comes up with plan B. That's in verses 1 through 3. Then he's going to bring Jesus out before the crowd and, and um, present him to them as part of his plan. We're going to see that that fails in, the, in scene three, that Pilate has fear. And then lastly, we're going to see that Jesus is condemned in verses 12 through 16 in our place. And so please stand with me as I read God's word. I'm just going to, I'm going to start reading, I think, at 1837 and, and read through the end of our text this morning. This is God's word for his church. Pilate therefore said to them, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they, came to, they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And Jesus answered, and the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid, and he entered in the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin." As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ, and I just want to acknowledge that he is our king, and 
He is the king that has conquered sin and death and sorrow and suffering. And so, Father, I just pray for the, the lawyer clan and um, everybody that's touched by this, that, that loves grace so deeply that, that you would bring comfort, you would bring comfort from your word, and that you would cause us to love Jesus Christ and, and be more devoted to him because of, of what you speak to us in your word today. Just uh, yield to you because I can't do this on my own. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to move through these first couple scenes, I think, pretty quickly. But verses 1 through 3, you know, Pilate, after the whole Barabbas thing kind of went astray, in verses 1 through 3, it says that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Scourging, you might, you know, some of you may know this, but scourging was a brutal Roman practice where they would like, they would whip a person, you know, I've read that it, like the whip would have multiple straps on it with like metal and bone embedded in it. So as they were whipping a person with this scourge, it would rip their flesh off. And in fact, uh, like uh, there was like, I think that at least four separate Roman historians record like the, the scourging that happens to, not just to Jesus, but to other people. And, and they would say that oftentimes people would, people would die just from the scourging. Other times, like uh, I think it was Eusebius that wrote that it was not uncommon for the scourge to rip you, rip you open so completely that, that your internal organs were visible and sometimes like spilling out of you. Like this is brutal. And Pilate takes Jesus and has him scourged. And then they, 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 so they torture him, and then they mock him, verse 2. And the soldiers wove, soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, which was probably like the scarlet robe of the Roman, like the Roman centurions that kind of faded into like this cheap purple. It's like an old discarded robe that they wrap him in, put this crown of thorns upon his head. They're mocking him, hail, king of the Jews, and giving him blows to his face. Like this is Pilate's plan to save an innocent man from crucifixion. It's brutal. And then as, as he accomplishes, as he finishes that, look what he says in verse 4, and this is where Jesus is presented. And Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Therefore, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Like when he says that, like this, the, 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 the mockery and the disfigurement and the punishment that Jesus, that Jesus experienced um, like would, would have presented him as this pathetic and like caricature of a person. So when, when Pilate is saying, Behold the man, it is this dismissive sort of like, Look at this guy. He is no threat to Rome. He is no threat to, like, you as the Jewish leaders. He is a pathetic excuse of a person who, like, you don't even need to worry about. You know, it's interesting. Uh, all of the things that happened, including Jesus' scourging, were fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before this, listen to what Isaiah says about the, the Savior that's going to come. He was despised and forsaken of men. Listen to this. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. Like, 
Isaiah is prophesying that Jesus would be so disfigured that people would not want to look at him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This whole process of the crucifixion, of Jesus' torture, of his, of his disfigurement is, is him like demonstrating for us that he's the one that bears our griefs. He's the one that carries us in our sorrows. He's the one on whom the, the chastening for my well-being fell upon him, what I deserved fell upon him. By his scourging, I'm healed because he's the one that stands in that place. So Pilate brings him out expecting that they're just going to be like, oh, like that's enough. But the murderous like desires of humanity for power and position and control are so deep that look at they say in verse um, 8, when therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. It's a weird statement from Pilate, because the Jews couldn't crucify Jesus. They, they weren't like really allowed to do that. But I think what he's saying is like, you know, do whatever you guys want. Like, he's an innocent man. It wasn't exactly the conviction that the Jewish leaders wanted Pilate to give on Jesus. And so then they finally bring up a charge. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And now listen to verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. I mentioned this last week because last week Jesus said a couple things. This is up in verses um, 36 and 37. He says, you know, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. I'm sure Pilate's thinking about, like, this guy's just some weird religious kook that's talking about something that is kind of irrelevant. And then Jesus says this uh, in verse 37, for this, I have um, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. I don't think at that point when Jesus said that back in chapter 18 that Pilate, like, connected the dots. He probably thought that being born and coming into the world was the same thing. So he just is treating Jesus as a human until the Jews say, oh no, this guy wasn't claiming to be a human. He was claiming to be the son of God. And now all of, like, the lights start to click on in Pilate's head. Oh, maybe when he said that his kingdom isn't of this world, he actually meant that it was from like God himself. Maybe he really meant what he said when he said, for this reason I have come into this world because he pre-existed it. And now Pilate, he was afraid before, even though we're not explicitly taught that. We're, said that, we're told that he is more afraid. You know, there's all this political treachery going on with the Jewish people that I'm sure he was nervous about how to manage all that. But now when he finds out that he might have just scourged a divine being, Pilate's like, I keep wanting to call him Herod again. Pilate's like, oh, poo. 
I just like, could have whipped a divine being. And so look what he says. He goes in. This is where Pilate, this is our third scene already. When Pilate, verse 8, then when Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium, that's his mansion where Jesus was, and said to Jesus, where are you from? So if you were wondering, like, what's he thinking? Now he's like, oh, if you've come into this world, where are you from? Are you really like the Son of God coming down out of heaven into this earth to speak the truth? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Jesus just sits there silently, refusing to answer him. And Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Pilate's like, hey, you better speak up because I am the guy that can let you go and I am the guy that can nail you to a cross. It's interesting phrasing because it's almost identical phrasing to something that Jesus had said back in chapter 10. I believe it's back, back in chapter 10, verse 18. He said this, talking about himself. Uh, it says, no one has taken it away from me, talking about his life. He says, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So I think what John's wanting us to do is have a moment similar to Pilate's, where Pilate heard something in the past where he's not really, didn't really think much of it, and then all of a sudden he finds out something that, oh, this is like, I think John's wanting us to have that same moment that Pilate says, no, I have authority to let you go, and I have authority to crucify you. A few chapters before, Jesus says, no, I have authority to lay down my own life. No one takes it from me. And I have authority to raise it up again. I am the Lord and giver of life. And so I think we're meant to sense all of a sudden the tension between these two powers. You have Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire of the day, standing before Jesus, who is maimed and disfigured and tortured and bleeding and mocked. who willingly lays his life down for the sorrows and suffering and sin of this world. And then Jesus drops the bombshell, verse 36. No, sorry, verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He's like, no, 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 Pilate, you overestimate your authority. You overestimate your power. In fact, you would have no power unless it had been given to you from above. And he's not talking about Caesar. He's like, you know, Pilate, like, there is an authority and a power and a king that reigns above even Caesar himself. And you would have no authority over me in this moment right now today unless God gave that to you. And then he says something really interesting. But he who is so he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. The interesting thing about that is it's not really clear who he's talking about. You know, it's possible that he's talking about Caiaphas, because we saw back in chapter um, 18 that Caiaphas, uh, like, tried Jesus and then sent him on to Pilate, turned him over to Pilate. So it's possible he's talking about 
Caiaphas, the high priest. But then Caiaphas wasn't the first in the chain. There was Judas back in chapter 13 where, where I think it was 13. It's not 13. Earlier in the book of John. <laughs> I think it's 18. Judas betrayed Jesus, leading the Roman cohort to him and, and like betrayed Jesus to the Romans. Could be Judas. But it doesn't even begin with Judas because back in chapter 13, we're told twice. We're, I think it's 13 verse maybe 6 or I think I've written down here somewhere. 13, beginning of 13. It says that, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And then later on in 13... 27, 37, something like that. Later on in 13, it actually says the devil entered into Judas and led him to do it. I think the ambiguity is maybe intentional. Like I think what John's wanting us to see is that there is this line that goes all the way back to the devil himself of those who are opposed to Jesus that want to see him and his kingdom destroyed. In fact, it goes all the way back to the garden. There was this, as God was cursing the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, listen to what he says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. There will be this, this line of people who like, who follows after like the devil who is all, who's going to be opposed to like the people of God and God himself between your seed and her seed. And ultimately the seed of the woman, Jesus himself will you will, he will crush, bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. Like, you might wound his heel, Satan, but he's going to wound your head. He's going to put an end to you. So there's this, there's this opposing kingdoms that we're being presented with here. The serpent who we discover in the scriptures is the devil himself who deceived Judas into betraying Jesus, who empowered him to do so, who then turned Jesus over to like the high priest of Annas's house, who then turned him over to Caiaphas, who then turned him over to, the, to, the, to Pilate himself and to the Romans. I think what Jesus is saying is this, he who delivered me over to you, Pilate, has the greater sin. What he's saying is like this baton, has been handed down from the beginning of time to this very moment. Like Satan to Judas to Annas to Caiaphas, and now you, Pilate. And now I stand before you. You've inherited this sinful line. Like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to pick up the baton and just continue to, like, follow this line of, like, sin and and death? Are you going to stand for like truth and for righteousness? The, the choice is now yours, Pilate. They've delivered me to you, and now it's on you to make a decision. Which brings us to our last point, verses 12 through 16, that Jesus is condemned.
says this, and I'll start reading. It says, as a result of this, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Think about that statement for a second. All right, Pilate, you've got this decision to make. You can either like be a friend of Caesar, be a friend with the powers of this world, be a friend of like, like hold on to your position, your influence, your, your relationship with Caesar, or you can be a friend of the truth and the one who stands for the truth, Jesus Christ himself. But you can't do either one. You know, throughout this whole text, last week and this week, Pilate was going back in and, in and the house and out of his house, in and house, out of his house, talking to Jesus, talking to the Jews. He's being pulled back and forth, and he's trying to play the middle. You know, at some point in time, you can't play the middle. You either have to choose to be a friend of the powers of this world or not. So we're, we're meant to see these two powers and these two lines of Satan's line and Jesus' line, and, and we're meant to feel this weight on, of Pilate's decision. What is he going to decide? Listen to Jesus earlier in John, John chapter 10, how he compares these two kingdoms. He uses a little bit different language, but he talks about himself and, and Satan. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, talking about the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Now, here's the reality, and we feel the reality of that even like this morning. The enemy of like God like wants to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came so that there would be that we might have life and would have it abundantly and go in and out and find pasture. We would have freedom and, and nourishment and all because the good shepherd willingly lays his life down for the sheep. Later on in John's life in 1 John 3, 8, he says this. He says that, and he uses the same term that the Jews called him uh, before Pilate, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So here you have Jesus being called the Son of God. He's coming into this world to lay his life down for the sheep, and he has come to do it to destroy the works of the devil so that we no longer have to deal with things like we have to deal with every day in this life that feel like they go on and on and on and on and overwhelm my soul sometimes. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. So that decision is lingering on Pilate. And it's interesting what John does is he kind of slows down the narrative. I think he wants us to like, like feel the weight of it. He said, starting in verse 13, after there's this declaration of like, no one makes, can be a friend of Caesar that, that acknowledges another king. Verse 13, when, when Pilate therefore heard these words, 
doesn't even give us the verdict yet. He brought Jesus out. And he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, which in Hebrew is called Gabbatha. Like, John's drawing out this narrative. Like, he's letting that hang on us for a little bit. Like, what are we going to decide? Are we going to decide to be a friend of Caesar or a friend of Jesus Christ? Jesus brings him out. He's talking about, like, two different languages. It's like, just kind of dragging, dragging this thing out, right? Like, I, I looked. There's no, I couldn't find any significance other than to, to Gabbatha other than it means pavement. You know, like... That's good to spend time on, right? Like John's dragging out this narrative. And then verse 20, where am I? Verse 14, he doesn't even get to it yet there. He says, now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour. So he drags it out even more and it's like, oh, this is the day of the preparation of the Passover. And right after he says that, he says, behold your king. Now, as you start to look into all those details, as Pilate comes and takes his seat in the official seat of judgment, and then we're told that it was the preparation for the Passover. The moment of preparation for the Passover was where they would take the Passover lamb that was pure and unblemished and innocent and spotless, and they would cut its throat and bleed it out so that the when the judgment of God came upon the, the land of Egypt, that the angel would pass over them, the judgment would pass over them, and they would be set free. It's at the moment that those lambs are being slaughtered in the temple where Pilate brings out Jesus and says, Behold your king. I think what John wants us to remember is like clear back at the beginning of the book of John. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the king who is being condemned to die in our place. In verse 21, no, sorry. Verse 15, they therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So at the very moment that the Passover lambs that secured the release of God's people from captivity to Egypt and the king of this whole universe, not just the king of the Jews, the king of this universe was being condemned as a criminal. I just want to stop here for a second because I almost... If you, if you were taking notes this morning and you wrote down all four of those scenes, the last one I said, Jesus is condemned, I want you to change it. Cross out, Jesus is condemned. You wrote it in your Bible? Oh, no, good. It's like, don't write my notes in your Bible. Um, everyone's condemned. Pilate is condemned. The Jews are condemned, like the known world is represented in that moment, and all of them are condemned as they condemn Jesus. Because they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Our allegiance is going to be to this world, to its values, to its power, to its systems. That's what we're going to bank on, because we can see that and feel that. And this guy who's all beaten, maimed, and disfigured... 
we're going to go with the powers of this world. So here's the question. You know, it's a simple one this week. I think this kind of has like one central driving like application. Like whose friend are you going to be? I think as Christians, we try to do what Pilate does. We go to work and we try to be our like, you know, our non-religious self. Then we come to church and we do the religious thing, just like Pilate was being dragged back between the, the Jewish leaders and Jesus himself. And we try to play this middle ground. And we try to like be friends of like, the world system and its powers and be and also like embrace Jesus. You know, I think every single moment or probably every single day we have that decision to make. Are we going to be like friends of Caesar? Are we going to trust in his what he has to offer in his power and his like approval and friendship, or are we going to, like, seek to obey Jesus and align with him? Don't be deceived. Like, your ability to manage playing the middle, going back and forth, will one day run out. James says this in James chapter 4. You adulteresses, can't have two loves. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. James just bottom lines it right there. Like, are we going to be friends of the world? No. He's not saying don't have friends in this world. Like we already saw that back in John 17, like that, that we are in the world, but not to be of the world. What he's saying though is like you can't like live by the same like desires and passions and values of this world and, and think that those are going to somehow get you what you want and also try to live by the, what Jesus calls you to. You, you need to make a decision. Are you going to be a friend of the world? Or are you going to... Like, love Jesus completely. You can't have two loves. And we, we I mean, I, I remember that as, as a younger person, like a lot of you young people sit over here, but like, you guys are, are faced with that all the time in school, in your relationship with your friends. Are you going to trust in Jesus, the one who overcame death forever, who came to destroy the works of the evil one? Are you going to trust in him who seeks to steal and kill and destroy the deceiver that is deceived from the very beginning? That's the question. And when you show up at work or when you're like meeting somebody at, like for a play date at the playground or when you're, you can fill in the blanks, whatever those things you do are. What do retired people do? When you're playing bingo, who said bingo? <laughs> He's a young guy that has lots of years of slave labor ahead of him. So, and you, all you have is bingo to look forward to. <laughs> but whatever it is, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself out to be an enemy of God. What Pilate shows us here is that when he like just leaned on his own power and his own strength, his own ability, and cut himself off from the truth and the, the, the possibility that Jesus was right, he tried plan A, he tried plan B, none of it worked. He, he, he brought him out and tried to convince them again, and none of it worked. And so what does it say he did in verse 16? So he then delivered him to them to be crucified. He turned his back on the Lord and giver of life, the one who seeks to give life so that we can have it abundantly. Aaron, young people, you guys can come up to close us in a song, but there's a lot of things that, that hit us, you know, in this, in this world that just come over and over and over again. Let me just reread John, 1 John 3, 8 for you again. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And he is absolutely worth following. Because other than that, like, it's one of those two kingdoms and then Jesus had said this earlier that same evening to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Like he's the only one that's worth following. He's the only one that's worth clinging to. He's the only one that's worth trusting in. He's the only one whose approval really matters. He's the one that's overcome this world and all of the sadness and sorrow and that it brings, but we can take courage because he's overcome it.